Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's a treat to be with you. I, you know, they tell us Skip is in Israel, but as I look at that video, it looks pretty fake to me. I think he might be in Hawaii for the weekend. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, as Skip said, uh, this church and his family has just been friends of ours for a long time. So it's a joy to kind of feel a part of the Calvary Albuquerque family. So thank you for, uh, for having me back. I'm guessing that you're like me in the sense that you like a good story. That's why I love movies. Well, there's a well-known actor today, one of the most successful actors of our day. You're probably familiar with him by the name of Shia LaBeouf. You might remember him from the recent Indiana Jones movies, from all the Transformer movies that have made billions of dollars worldwide. Well, there's another side to the life of Shia that most people might not know. He was interviewed in Prey Magazine not too long ago, and it started off and they quote him. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life and I get frightened. He says, I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America. That's his word, not mine, even though I'm from California. He says, but it could all go away in just a minute. And then he said, he said, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days think they're, don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from. But it's a God-sized hole. Then he says, if I knew how to fill it, I would, and I'd be on my way. And then this actor, who has everything the world we live in says you're supposed to have to have a meaningful life, When he's feeling insecure, he'll take his motorcycle, go park it on the side of the road, stand there, take off his helmet, just hoping that people will recognize him and wave. Isn't that sad? Kind of reminds me of that song by U2, one of the most famous songs that says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's something in the human heart that is seeking Something that cannot be fulfilled just in this world alone. Well, we're going to look at the words of somebody this morning who had the boldness to speak that he understood exactly what this life is all about and exactly how to have eternal life and a meaningful life. And he wrote those words 2,000 years ago. And he guesses who that person might be. Okay, like two of you got it. That's one more than the first service. I I teach at a Christian high school. I tell my students, I go, look, if you don't know the answer on a test, just write Jesus and you'll get it right half the time. So we're going to look at the words of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 17. If you can't find it, it's right after chapter 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, John. You're chuckling. That's good. That tells me you've read Skip's new book on how to read the Bible. All right, John chapter 17. Let's look at a little context before we read the passage. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples somewhere between two and three years. They've seen him heal. They've listened to his teachings. They've walked with him day and night. And then now he's just had the Passover meal with them. 
They've just, he just, you know, washed their feet. And now he's speaking his final words to them. These are pretty important words, aren't they? It's like he's summarizing what he's been teaching them for the past couple years. 17, John chapter 17, verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. It's as if Jesus is saying, my whole life has been building. The hour is finally here. Have you ever felt like your whole life comes down to the moment that's before you? There's a lot of people who are going to feel that way this summer competing in the Olympics. Train their whole lives. And then that moment when the gun comes off and the race begins, their whole life is defined. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. He's praying to God and he's saying, Father, the hour has come. And as I said earlier, it's his last full conversation with his disciples before he dies. Now, if you are about to die and you are with those you love, your family, your friends, what would you say? What words would you speak? I'm guessing you'd speak the words that are most important that you want them to remember you about. Well, these are those words for Jesus. And it's actually a prayer. You see, Jesus, people, when we ask what's the Lord's prayer, people often say, you know, the prayer about how will be thy name, give us this day our daily bread. Well, this is actually a prayer Jesus gives, really his final prayer. So in a sense, this is the real Lord's prayer. John 17, he continues. He says, glorify your son so the son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. Now, have you ever gotten up and walked down to the kitchen and got there and stopped and thought, why am I here? <laughs> you ever gone out to the garage to get something? You get there and you look around and you think, I have no idea what I'm looking for. Well, Jesus was human. So I imagine sometimes he went to the shed and was like, ah, what tool am I looking for? And went back and had to get reminded. That might have happened. But when it came to the mission and why he was here, Jesus did not forget that. He knew exactly why he was here. He was born for this and his whole life has been building and culminating to this moment. What is it? He says, glorify me so I may glorify you, speaking to the Father. Now the question is, when I read this, I thought, what does he mean to glorify? When we hear glorify, we tend to think, oh, if you glorify something, you make it great and you hold it up and you say how worthy it is. Well, that's not what I think Jesus means in this passage. What glorify actually means is to reveal something's true design and its true nature. So if you glorify something, you show its real character so people can grasp what it actually is. So if you think about a peach tree, what would glorify a peach tree? A peach would. A beautiful peach shows the true nature and the true design of what that peach tree is meant to do. Well, at this moment, Jesus is speaking to God. He's saying, glorify me so I may glorify you. In other words, through his death and through his suffering, Jesus would reveal to the world his character and the character of God the Father. So Jesus is praying for strength so he might show the world the character of this suffering God. But then he continues. Uh, in verse 3, it says, this is eternal life. It's almost like Jesus is talking that he sums it up and he stops and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. 
This is eternal life that they may know you. Now, I'm a philosopher. I studied philosophy in graduate school. So when I hear this, I think that they may know you. What does he mean by the word know? Right? So as a philosopher, I want to understand it. And philosophers break words down. By the way, do you know what a, a philosophy major and a large pizza have in common? Neither can feed a family of five. I wish I knew that before I studied philosophy. Now, when Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you, there's actually three senses in which we use the word know. One sense of the word know is knowing that, which is understanding something. So I know that two plus two equals four. I know that George Washington is the first president of the United States. And I know that if I hold this book up and drop it because of the law of gravity, it will fall down towards the larger object, the earth. These are truths that I understand in my mind. Now, the question is, when Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, is Jesus saying eternal life is about having correct beliefs about God? Is that what Jesus means? You know what's ironic about this? Is there's a group of persons, so to speak, or beings in the New Testament that have perfect theology, but could not be further away from God. In James 2.19, it says this, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Friends, demons have good theology, but their hearts are far from God. When Jesus said eternal life is knowing God, he doesn't mean just having all your theological ducks in a row. Now look, I teach theology. It's incredibly important for us to understand theology. What does it mean that God is a trinity? What does it mean salvation by grace? What about the end times? But sometimes we confuse having correct theology and knowing truths with knowing God. And they're very different things. Well, what else could we mean by the word no? One sense is knowing truth, but another one is, have you ever thought about, we use the term, we'll say, do you know how to ride a bike? There's a sense where we use the word no, which is know how, right? It's not, you don't learn how to ride a bike by studying physics and weight and learning how mass and speed and all this stuff. That doesn't help. You have to get out there and just do it. You have to experience it. There's kind of a knowledge that comes from experience. In fact, I'm guessing all of you asked the same question I asked my mom when I was younger. Mom, how will I know when I'm in love? I'm guessing your mom's gave you the exact same answer she gave me, which is what? You'll just know. And we all gave the same response. That doesn't help. (laughs) But all of a sudden, when you find someone you have a soul connection with and you care about deeply, you go, oh, now I get it. You see, is this what Jesus meant by knowing God? Is it kind of an experience that we have in this intuitive awareness of the divine? By the way, this is actually what it means to know God that's taught at the largest church in America. The Church of Oprah. (laughs) And she does teach this theology. She teaches new age theology that God is a spirit that you tap into and you connect with an energy force like the movie Star Wars or the movie Avatar. Now, look, we better have true beliefs about God and we do experience God in a personal way. But I don't think this plums the depths of what Jesus meant by knowing God. 
See, there's another sense in which we use the term know. And it's not knowing facts. It's not knowing how to do something. It's knowing someone personally. It's a knowledge that comes from being in relationship with someone. When I say I know my wife, I don't mean I can tell you truths about her. I mean there's a depth of a relationship there with a human being, a person. You know, in some of the older translations of the Bible, they would say things like Abraham knew his wife, Sarah. Now, they were talking about sex, but why did they say he knew her? Because although the culture we live in says that sex is just about the physical, in reality, it was designed to involve the emotions, the spirit, the body, the soul. It's the closest you can get to somebody and there's a sense of intimacy. It's knowing somebody. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't talking about sex, but what's he talking about? He's talking about knowing somebody intimately and personally in a relationship. When he talks about knowing God, yes, we better have truths. Yes, we experience God, but God is a being that we can know in a personal way. You see, the shocking claim of Christianity is that the eternal creator of the universe who spoke us into existence has taken on human flesh so we can know him in a personal way. If you don't get goosebumps when you kind of think about that, then you might miss it. That the God of the universe took on flesh so we can know and relate to him. See, to realize how shocking this is, something happened to me a couple weeks ago that, that came clear. I, I do teach high school and I got tired of my high school students graduating and many of them walking away from their faith. They go to the university. Do you know there's two to three times as many atheists and agnostics in the university than in the public as a whole? And many of them pick on students, go after the Bible, historical Jesus, after creation. And I got together with a buddy. I said, we got to do something about this before our students get to the university. I said, let's find a way to have them experience that challenge ahead of time. So let's bring in the most godless, secular people we can to speak to our students and show our students that they can stand up for the truth. So for the past few years, I've been taking my students on trips to Berkeley. <laughs> and it's awesome. We bring in atheists and the students learn. They're like, we can really defend our faith. I say, we can because it's true. Well, this year we did something different. This year we decided to go to a city in America that has over one million of the largest unreached people group in the world. It's Muslims. We went to reach out to Muslims. Why? Because God loves Muslims. And he cares deeply for the Muslim people. We visited mosques. We went and got in conversations with Muslims. We brought in Muslims to speak to our group, met with Christian missionaries. And my son and I, who's eight, went up to this restaurant that had Arabic writing everywhere. We walked up and I said, hey, my name's Sean. I'm a teacher. This is my son, Scotty. We're looking for some Muslims who'd be willing to have some conversations and answer some questions. Well, as we were standing there, there were three of them sitting out front at a restaurant. One guy goes, oh, perfect. He goes, don't talk to him. He's a bad Muslim. Talk to Ahmad. He is a good Muslim. I was like, all right, I'll talk to Ahmad. So we sat down in conversation. It became so clear to me the different ways in which Muslims and Christians see God. Because if you talk to Muslim, often they'll say, oh, we worship the same God. And I always respond by saying, really, you believe Jesus is God? And of course, they'll say, no, I don't believe Jesus is God. Why? Because the Muslim God is distant. 
He's transcendent. He's outside of us. And in fact, if you believe that God has taken on human flesh and has a son, you have committed the worst sin on Islam. The worst sin, it's called shirk, and you've destined your soul to hell. Yet Christianity says this God who is outside of us has taken on human flesh and entered into into our world so we can know this God personally. This idea shocks Muslims. They can't believe that God, he slept and he got tired and he had hands and he, he walked and he related to people. Yes, we follow a personal God. And the other thing that's amazing, how can we enter in a relationship with God? Because God in his very character is relationship. You say, what do you mean? We worship one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if in his very nature, there is one God who is community and invites us into a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're made in the image of this relational God, which means we're made to know God personally. See, as I read the Bible, it's amazing how it says over and over again, it was good, it was good, it was good, right? God speaks the world into existence, it was good. God separates the waters, it was good. Creates the land, it was good. Creates the animals, it was good. Creates woman, it was really good. But then he says something was not good. What's the first thing the Bible says was not good? That man was alone. That's the first thing that's not good. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. We are made for relationships. And when we don't have that relationship with God and with other people, something is broken. So I came across an article in Time a few years ago, and the cover said, The Science of Happiness. And as I read through article after article, they talked about things that people say bring happiness, but they said in reality don't. So the first thing it said in this article is it said wealth. It said everything in our culture tells us that wealth brings happiness. It said, but it doesn't. It said, in fact, once our basic needs are met, increased money does little to increase our sense of happiness with life. They said, second, intelligence or education. And this pains me because I'm a teacher and I want my students to get a good education. But if you think getting a good education is going to give your life meaning, you're mistaken. Ernest Hemingway, one of the great writers of all time, who took his own life because he was miserable. He said, happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing I know. And then it said, youth. It's our culture says, stay as young as you can because younger people are happier. It said, but in reality, older people are actually happier than younger people. You might be thinking, what do they mean by older people? I've made the mistake of defining that before. (laughs) I won't do that again. But the principle, they said, younger people are less happy than older people are. But then the fourth one, they said marriage. They said marriage in itself doesn't make people happier. They said, but here's the problem. As a whole, married people are happier than non-married people. But the question is, does marriage make people happier or do happier people get married? You see, it's the chicken and the egg question. They said all these things don't bring happiness and then they listed two things that bring happiness. By the way, they gave a caveat though. They said, I hope you realize, this is what they wrote, that your circumstances have little to do with what brings happiness. 
And they gave an example of a study they had of two groups of people. One group were people who had recently become paralytics. The other group was people who had recently won the lottery. Those who won the lottery described satisfaction with life immediately going up. Those who become paralytics went through a stage of difficulty and depression. But then they studied them six months later. And the question is, what did they find? Did they stay the same? Did they reverse? Did they go back? You know what they found? They said as a whole, people from both groups returned to the same level of happiness they had before their circumstances changed. That means our circumstances have little to do unless we allow them to shape our degree of happiness. So what brings happiness according to time? Look, when I read this, I chuckled. I honestly laughed out loud. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Why? Well, when I show it to you, I think you might pick up on why I chuckled at this. What brings happiness according to Time Magazine? Number one, they said a relationship with God or religious faith, a transcendent purpose. Number two, relationship with people, friends. Now, why did I chuckle? Because a verse came to my mind in Mark 12 where Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And 2,000 years ago, before science even asked the question, he said, love God and love other people. I love it when science catches up with what Jesus has always taught. (laughs) Now, look, I'm not against science. I think science is fantastic and unbelievable, and I thank God for it. But it's not the end-all and be-all of human knowledge and human existence. Science is only possible because Jesus holds the world in the palm of his hand and allows us to study the world. St. Augustine, one of the great thinkers in the Christian, not even just the Christian faith of all time, he was not a believer. He wrestled. He ultimately came to the conclusion Christianity was true, but he didn't want to change his life. He didn't want to give up his promiscuous sexual life to follow Jesus. He finally gave in and he wrote something in his book, The Confessions, that I think is right on. He said, for you have made us for yourself in a prayer to God. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's why Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. But then in the second part of verse three, it says that they may know you, the only true God. The only true God. When I read this, I paused. I thought, wait a minute. Does that mean there's other false gods that exist? Is Jesus the only true God, but these false, like, you know, like Thor type gods or something actually exist? Then I went to my pastor talking about it and he pointed me to a verse that made perfect sense. First Corinthians 8, 4 says, about eating food offered to idols. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. These other gods don't exist, but what happens? We invent them and we come up with gods or idols to worship and to follow in place of the one true God. I'm an apologist, which means I like to offer a defense for how we know the Bible's true, God exists, Jesus is God, etc. One of the things that always amazes me when I open up the Bible to Genesis 1, it doesn't give an argument for the existence of God. It just says, in the beginning, God which means the Bible assumes that God exists. It doesn't give an evidence for it. Why not? 
because we've been made in the image of God and we know if we're functioning properly that God actually exists. We know this. So if we don't worship God because we've been made to worship him, we're going to worship something else. We're going to find something to fill up the place that God is meant to fulfill in our lives. That's why Jesus said that they may know you the only true God. Have you ever sent a message to someone you didn't mean to send it to? Have you ever hit send on the email or the text and then the moment later tried to reach into cyberspace and pull it back? I was on a plane going home not too long ago and I saw one of my good friends and as we're leaving, I didn't even know who's on the same flight. So I thought I'd text him, make sure he didn't leave so I could see him briefly. So I texted him, I said, hey punk, turn around. I'm right behind you. And I sent it to my mom. who is home alone at night reading. <laughs> now, fortunately, my mom's got a good sense of humor. She texted me back, and this is when I realized it. She said, hey, son, I think you've got the wrong punk. <laughs> now, I tell you that because a couple years ago, I was in a public debate with a high school teacher who's a PhD about God and morality at a local junior college. And a girl emailed me and asked if she could interview me for the local paper. I said, sure. But then a few days later, I got an email from the same girl just pouring out her heart, sharing this deep stuff. I'm thinking, why did she send me this? And then I realized she didn't mean to. So she came over to interview me. It was done. I said, you know what? You copied me on this email. I know it's none of my business, but you are, you're burying some deep stuff. I work with students every day. Can I help you through this? Can we talk about it a little bit? You know what it was? She grew up in a Christian church grew up in a Christian family. She said, but I've walked away from God. I can't believe him anymore. Yet I still go to church. I haven't told my parents. I said, well, why not? She said, you know what? I grew up in a home. I, I know my parents love God. I know they love me. But work was God in our family growing up. My dad missed my plays. He missed sports. He went, he drops off at church. He'd go work and then, you know, pick us up and go work some more. She goes, I just find it impossible to believe in a loving, caring, personal God when my father is this way. Now, this man, I believe, loved God and meant well. But he had another God that he was following. You see why Jesus says this? The only true God that we bow down to and we worship and we follow is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can know him in a personal way. Now you might be thinking there, you might be thinking, wait, the only true God? You're saying, you're saying that Jesus is the only way to get to God? That is so intolerant. How can you stand up and speak and say that people of other faiths are wrong and separated from God? What right do you have to say that? Are you really saying Jesus is the only way to get to God? Well, just like George Washington is the only one who qualifies as the first president of the United States. doesn't matter whether we like it, whether we believe it. That happens to be true. Just as my car runs on gasoline, it doesn't run on chocolate or maple syrup. 
My alarm clock only runs on C batteries, not D or not solar power. Human beings are meant to only run on God. And you're probably saying, but that's politically incorrect. Look, I am more interested in being correct than being politically correct. I was in Starbucks not too long ago and I was sitting there reading a book, minding my own business, but this girl read a book that just invited me to ask her a question. It was a book called God is Not Great by the late Christopher Hitchens. Maybe some of you have read it. Hitchens was one of the most outspoken, articulate atheists of a long time. And this girl was reading the book and I just can't keep my mouth shut sometimes. And I said, hey, that looks like an interesting book. I said, what's it about? Have you ever asked someone a question like that and then 15 minutes later regretted that you asked it? (laughs) Wondering if the person even breathed for that period of time? Her eyes light up. She goes, oh my goodness, this book is incredible. It shows how religion poisons everything and Christianity has been the bane of the existence of the human world. It's taught slavery. It's taught misogyny. Science has disproved God. Evolution is true. I'm going, whoa. I said, what does it say about Jesus? She goes, oh, this is some of the most important parts. She said, after reading this, I realized that Jesus is not the son of God. Jesus was not born a virgin. She said, in fact, I want you to think of the nicest person you know. My grandma comes to mind. She said, that's what Jesus was like. He was just a really nice guy. And I sat there for a moment. I thought about it. I could only think of one thing to say. I said, if Jesus was just a nice guy then why did they crucify him? Because even the Romans wouldn't crucify Mr. Rogers. (laughs) You see, they didn't crucify Jesus for anything he did, but for who he claimed to be. In the Roman Empire, they didn't care that the early Christians worshipped Jesus as God, but they cared that the early Christians said, Jesus is God and the other gods are false. They wouldn't have cared if Jesus claimed to be one God, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody gets to the Father but by me. Those are bold words. They were politically incorrect when he spoke it and they're politically incorrect today. So how can I say that Jesus is the only way? I got a phone call from a friend a few years ago that totally took me by surprise. Picked up the phone. He said, hey, Sean, I got a question for you. He said, you teach your students how to defend Christianity, right? I said, yeah. He goes, where do you start? I said, why are you calling me and asking me this? Now, why did I say that? Because I had been talking to him for probably a decade about God, just at different times, about science, about Jesus when we could appropriately. And he just was never interested. And then all of a sudden he's asking me, well, his brother at 15 got a brain tumor. And he said, it shook me up to my own mortality. Why does God allow suffering? I don't know why he allows all suffering, but I know something C.S. Lewis said is true. God whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. Sometimes God uses or allows pain to get us to focus on what really matters. So we met at a coffee shop and we sat down. This guy got perfect math scores on his SATs. 
We sat down. He said, I'm scientific minded. Can you give me any evidence that God exists? First thing he said. I said, all right, I'll do my best. We walked through some scientific evidence. He said, well, what about the Bible? How do you know the Bible's true? We talked about archaeology, the manuscripts. He said, well, you know, why why is there evil? And I said, well, here's how Christianity thinks about this. And then he looked at me and said, do you really believe Jesus is the only way? How can you say Jesus is the only way to God? I looked at him. I said, look, I'm not the one who's saying it. Jesus said it. Take it up with him. (laughs) I'm not. I'm just repeating the words that Jesus spoke. Look, anybody can claim to have truth. Anyone can claim to be God. Anyone can tell us how to get to God. But Jesus claimed those things and he did something that nobody else has done to give credentials to his claim. For one, Jesus did miracles. Jesus had the power to heal the blind and restore sight. He had power over nature. He walked on water. He fed 5,000. He rose the dead. Jesus fulfilled prophecy written hundreds of years earlier. And ultimately, Jesus said, I'm going to die and death is not going to conquer me. I'm coming back. And he did. And he also lived a sinless life. Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't like the idea that Jesus is the only way. I don't necessarily like that. I have loved ones who don't know Jesus and it breaks my heart to think about what Jesus said in regards to where they're going. But what right do I have to change the words of Jesus who powerfully did miracles and backed it up? There's a hundred verses in the Bible in the New Testament where Jesus claims to be the only way. I want to show you a quick video clip. This is a friend of mine by the name of Greg Coakley. He has a ministry called Stand to Reason. And I interviewed him for a video series I did called God Quest where we explored the big questions of life. And he allowed me to ask him this question, how can Jesus be the only way? Look, I realize that this whole issue about Jesus being the only way is really offensive to people. And they, and they figure, well, why has it got to be that way? Why, why can't everybody get in in their own way? And, and so here's an illustration that might make sense of it for you. Now, when, when your car goes bad, something's wrong with it, okay? Uh, what do you do to fix it? Well, you can't fix it until you know what the problem is. Once you find the problem... Then you apply the specific solution for the problem to get your car rolling. Look, at if your transmission drops out, it doesn't do any good to say, gee, I wish it wasn't a transmission. That costs a lot of money. I don't like that. Why can't it just be an alternator? Or why can't it just be a battery cable? Because it isn't. It's something else. So in order to fix the car, you have to go to the problem and fix the problem. Any old solution won't do. You've got to find the solution that's germane to the problem. By the same token... Man has a problem. What is that problem? How do you fix it? Well, you can't fix it until you know what it is. And most people have an awareness of what that happens to be. They know that something's wrong, not just with humanity, but with themselves. Something's broken inside. They, they have a bad self-image. They know that something's amiss. And they also feel a certain way about it. They feel guilty about it. My thinking is the best explanation for the feeling of guilt is that we actually are are guilty. We know that we have offended the one to whom we're responsible morally. That ultimately is God. You want to fix that problem? That's not a, a new battery or a cable fix or an alternator. That's a total rehaul. That's what's required. 
Only Jesus can give that. He fixes the problem of sin by providing forgiveness so we can be joined back with our Creator. And in being joined back with our Creator, begin to repair the internal difficulties that we have, the brokenness that's inside. And this happens over time in relationship with God. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who fixed the problem. No other fix will do. All of it is shooting at the wrong issue. All of religious efforts address the wrong thing. The issue is separation from God. It's based on our rebellion. God offers forgiveness And in accepting that, we're reconnected with the only source of life that we have. That's up to us. Now it's our turn. Do we want to be fixed or not? Amen. Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only one who bore the debt of sin so we could be forgiven and be in relationship with a holy God. Do you know God? I don't mean do you have facts about God. I don't mean do you experience spiritual things. I mean, do you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe? You say, well, yeah, I think I do. Then you probably don't. You say, well, you know, when I was a kid, I did. Then maybe you never did. You say, well, I'd like to. Then this morning is a chance for you. Because the creator of the universe has made you in his image and loves you knows the number of hairs on your head and yearns to be in relationship with you. In the 1990s, there's a pastor named James Kennedy who led this movement called the Evangelism Explosion. And people would knock on doors and they'd just ask a simple question. They'd say, if you died and stood before God today, and he said, why should I allow you into my kingdom? What would you say? Most people say, well, you know, I'm good. Or I did a lot of things for God. Or I went to church. And they would say, if you look at what Jesus taught in the scriptures, none of those qualify. They'd say, you know what allows you into God's kingdom? He'd say, think about it this way. If someone knocks on your door and says, hey, good morning, can I come into your house? What are you going to say? No. If they say, well, I'll clean your bedroom. I'll say, no. I'll babysit your kids. Definitely not. Why am I going to let somebody in? If you know them and you have a relationship with them. It's the same with God. We don't earn our way to salvation. It's by knowing God personally. That's why it's some of the last words Jesus spoke. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. In a minute after the worship song, if you don't know Jesus, or you want to know more about it, please come forward. There'll be pastors up here who are caring, who are thoughtful, can answer your questions, pray with you, help you enter into that relationship with the God of the universe. Some of you are sitting here and maybe you've been dragged to church this morning. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you're like, yeah, I've heard this, but I have some questions. I don't know if I believe it. My wife and I have a gift for you. It's a little book my dad wrote years ago called More Than a Carpenter. And two years ago, I helped him update it. See, my dad grew up in a, with an alcoholic father in an abusive home. He was sexually abused for years, hated God, set out to disprove Christianity and write a book against it. Well, that could be a dangerous thing to do if you have an open mind and a hope and heart. My dad ended up becoming a believer. And just last year, he celebrated his 50th anniversary of ministry telling the world the truth. You know, thank you. 
50 years is pretty long. I told my dad, I said, man, dad, you're old. I said, in fact, dad, when God said, let there be light, you flipped on the switch. But he wrote this book to just sit down and answer the questions. Who is Jesus? How do we know the Bible's true? And he really rose from the grave. Now, if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I know someone who's a skeptic. Okay, please pay for it because my wife and I will go broke. But if you're actually here and you're like, I do have questions and I don't know if I believe or not, we would love to give this gift, this book as a gift to you. If you'll just take it to heart and have it be a part of your journey. Just let us know at the book table and I will sign it for you and be honored to pass it on to you. I also wrote a book called Is God Just a Human Invention to help in particular my students who are getting hammered by professors and our secular culture that says God can't exist with hell, with evil. God's a genocidal bully. The Bible has contradictions. Trying to say there's good answers to these for Christians who take the time to think and use their mind. And last, I wrote some for students because my passion is young people called the Apologetic Study Bible for Students. And it's filled with all these cool answers, but we got the top 120 questions that young people have been asked about God, about science, about faith, etc. Including my favorite question. If God made everything, then why is it wrong to smoke pot? That's a good question. I've been asked that many, many times. Father, I thank you for this church. It's just obvious that your hand is on this church and you're doing amazing things. I'm humbled to hear about how many people have become believers recently and will be baptized soon. God, just keep the enemy away from stopping or discouraging in any way at all the good work that is happening here. God, I pray if there's any skeptics here today who don't believe that they just have the courage to come up and just get a book and read it with an open heart and ask you to show yourselves to them. And may the Christians just be encouraged in their faith and to seek that relationship with you. God, we love you so much and thank you for taking on human flesh and entering our world so we can know you in a personal way. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.